Hey everybody, I'm Nitsan Mosri. Welcome to another edition of the Traveling Investor Live Q&A. We're born into our families and we're born into our society and we're born into our parents' financial reality. And what most people don't understand is that just because we are born into a specific family or socioeconomic world, it doesn't mean that's where we have to end up. See, being born poor, it's not your fault. Dying poor is. A majority of people live life by default. They accept the cards that they were dealt and offer no resistance to mediocrity. Here on the Traveling Investor Show, we talk about how to live life on your terms and create the life, finances, relationships that you dream of. So join me, Nitsan Mosri, your host, every week on the Traveling Investor Live Q&A Show, where we demystify the art of mastering your mind, body, and wallet so that you can be at every softball game, so that you can go on vacation and tell your boss to kiss ass. Today, I've got a great friend of mine. Uh, he is... Uh, He's one of the uh, the top guys in the real estate industry, you know, and in this show, we talk about how to create passive cash flow. We talk about how to um, build a lifestyle uh, that people dream of, right? A lifestyle of, of the movies. We talk about how to master your mind so that you can create and become that successful person. Uh, we talk about health. We talk about how to get keep your body primed and ready to move at any given instant so that you can do what you need to do to become successful. And we all know health, you know, or money without health, it it's nothing, right? If we're not healthy, we can't enjoy our money. We can't enjoy our time or anything like that. So it starts with having a healthy mind, a healthy soul, a healthy body, and then a healthy wallet as well. So today, my guest, he started out in an, as an institutional guy. He worked for a big, big institutional company, a family office. He knows the ins and the outs of real estate investing, of numbers, of what it takes to build the team. Because in real estate, we have to create a team around us so that we can go out and become successful because there's so many moving parts. Uh, he went out, got his uh, college uh, master's degree in business, came back and is just killing it. They just closed on a, on what, on a 136 unit in Tallahassee where they're doing a conversion from student housing into multifamily. They're working on another project of a hotel conversion into multifamily. And we're going to talk to him about where he was, what he did, how he got there, and the pitfalls along the way. So what I suggest, folks, is get your pen and paper out. Start taking notes uh, because this guy, Charles, his name is Charles Taylor, by the way. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, we're starting uh, – we're, we're back together, and we're also going to do business together. And I figured what better person to have on the show than somebody who's been behind the scenes of the big institutional players – and has underwritten hundreds and hundreds of deals, has looked at hundreds of, of, of offering memorandums and underwriting templates. Uh, if, you, uh, if you think you've 
met an expert. Uh, this guy is the expert. So, um, but before I bring him on, because he's waiting for us and he's uh, he's waiting there to talk to us, do me a favor. Uh, you're listening in. Go to the um, the Traveling Investor YouTube channel. Do me a favor. Go there. Click, subscribe, like a few of the videos, share them. You know, my goal is to help a billion people achieve financial independence. And whatever that means for you personally, that's what I want to help you achieve. So I have a lot of work to do, and I'm only one person. You guys are my team, my listeners, my travelers out there spreading the word. So do me a solid and blast out that YouTube channel so that we can go global and we reach over a billion people and help them build financial freedom so that they can live life on their terms rather than by default. Because it doesn't make a difference where you came from, what you started with, what you didn't start with, what country you live in. Multifamily real estate investing can take anyone and make them into multimillionaires. If you've got the right team in place, the right mindset, a good working uh, ecosystem in your in your physical body, there's no reason why you can't do that. All right. So do me a favor, go to the YouTube channel, hit like, subscribe, share it. You know, uh, it's all there. Uh, I want to say thank you to our sponsors, uh, Cornerstone Investment Partners. If you're looking to place your money for passive investments, that's the way to go about doing it. Uh, commercial Realty Partners, if you're looking to buy or sell your commercial property, they're the one stop commercial advantage. And Jade PMC, which is a property management company. If you're looking for an awesome management company that will run your property as if they owned it themselves, JPMC is your team. I want to thank everybody for being here as well. And uh, if anybody's listening today that was on our webinar yesterday that did not get a chance to ask some questions, today is your chance to ask. And uh, if we have any listeners right now, hey, why don't you tell me where you guys are um, are listening in from? Yeah, ask us anything, okay? Now, with further ado, uh, I really didn't do justice to Charles Taylor and his introduction. So when we bring Charles on, I want to ask him to give us a little background on, on who he is and where he came from and what he's done. So without further ado, let's bring on Charles. Oh, thank you, Nitsan. That was quite the uh, introduction. <laughs> You're gonna make My pleasure. <laughs> awesome, man. How are you? It's been I'm doing. I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. It's been it's been a long time since we spoke. I know it's been <laughs> a little over two hours. It's, it's too long, right? Two hours too long. That's right. Awesome, man. But that's the way to do it. You know, you, sometimes you speak to your partners more than you speak to your spouse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? And then when you meet your spouse, you don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, that is how it goes. Um, a good partnership does have uh, a lot of communication. Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if it's a marital partnership or a business partnership, right? And uh, my wife being a uh, licensed clinical social worker uh, and therapist, she is somebody I could always talk to about anything. There you go. Perfect. Except, except real estate, of course. Right? Of course, because they hear it so much. I remember when my daughters were younger and my and I had my uh, office, my um, in-home office, and they would run around and they'd hear me on the phone and I'm talking and I'm talking and they would start mimicking 
all these things. Oh yeah, we need one million dollars. Oh yeah, but that you know the inspection. Oh yeah, but that house and you know talk to the realtor. <laughs> so I I have an eighteen month old old daughter at home and she's in the car with me and she's around me all the time when I'm on the phone. And so, um, for instance, yesterday I, I was getting off the phone and I said, okay, you know, let's catch up in about an hour. And then she will yell out, bye. <laughs> she, already, she already knows what I'm going to say before I say it. Right. That's great. That's great. That's fantastic. But yeah, you know, communication and, but you know, what's awesome about that as well is that our kids will grow up hearing entrepreneurial speak in the background. Um, they hear, you know, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, so that when they're growing up and they're older, those numbers, they won't be afraid of those numbers. They won't shy away from that. It'll be embedded in their subconscious mind, right? And 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 it'll it'll affect them, right? Hopefully in a positive way where they'll be able to go out there and really now have um, an advantage because they grew up hearing that kind of talk, Right. Partnerships and operating agreements and contracts and, you know, even the even the ugly side of it, they heard. Right. So it's it's in there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, when uh, when you are thinking about, you know, a million dollars as your own money, that is a that's a huge amount of money. But when you are talking about doing projects and there's mm -hmm. millions of dollars involved, it's just a number. You know, you just add zeros to it. It's all it's all relative. So um, getting comfortable with. But those bigger numbers means you will be able to earn more um, because of that cash flow. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so Charles, why don't uh, why don't you share with everybody listening today and who's going to be listening in the future? Share with us a little bit about you, your background, where you came from, uh, your experience, and uh, what you're now what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, very briefly, I um, I started off out of high school, I went to work for a luxury home builder out of Atlanta. Uh, we did, we did pretty large projects. I think it was in the two to $6 million range. Uh, and so I was working with vendors as the foreman slash construction slash project manager. Um, we were doing some land development and clearing. And so, um, I really enjoyed the aspect of the business, but I was, I knew I needed to go in a different route. I wasn't wanting to, you know, wear a hard hat my full career. So this was around 2002. I started that in 2005, transitioned over to Keller Williams commercial in Atlanta. Um, and in my first month I listed some land and I listed a couple apartment buildings. And that was the beginning of my multifamily uh, career. We, uh, we were working around the Beltline at the time, which is uh, a revitalization program that's been going on in Atlanta uh, coming up on you know, 20 years now. So uh, today, what has happened in, in that belt line is just amazing. Uh, and it's interesting to think back on what it was like before all of that. But, um, you know, that time frame really solidified uh, my love and, and uh, desire to do what I'm doing today. Um, you know, the 2008 and 2009 market crashed and I learned a very valuable lesson at that time. Uh, my clients and investors that had the speculative uh, land or new development projects, they ended up losing everything. Um, the, the ones with the cash flowing assets, like your multifamily, um, they not only survived, but they were able to thrive through that time frame. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, it was then that I decided, okay, I need to go back to school and, and get some more education. And so I went to Kennesaw State uh, up in Atlanta and got a finance degree. Uh, after that, I, I moved over uh, into the private equity world, working on institutional multifamily uh, projects. And so that's actually where I met you, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was by that time. So when I started off, I came in as an analyst and I worked my way up to through the acquisition side uh, to become a vice president. And uh, eventually I was able to transition over to capital markets and and then eventually worked my way up um, to the executive team where I was actually the director of the capital markets division. Uh, I was arranging debt and I started shortly after shortly, not too long after doing the debt on some projects, uh, we worked on a couple deals together, you and I, I started working on the equity side of things as well. Uh, and so that opened my eyes into the world of institutional equity. Um, since I, when I left that company, I knew uh, I wanted to go off on my own and become a general partner. Uh, and the reason I knew that is you were the one that asked me to transition over to a general partnership side and work with you. Um, I wasn't completely comfortable with the idea of running a business and, and doing these things on my own. And so that's where um, the, the UF MBA came into play. Um, you know, as you said earlier, I, I came back to you and asked you for a referral letter to get into the program, which um, graduated with that in April of 2020. And immediately after, um, incorporated Burton Capital Group, which is my, my uh, multifamily acquisition firm. So fast forward to today, um, in 2021, we, we closed on 230 units across three assets. Um, we are looking to continue closing deals throughout 2022. We currently have two projects under, um, under contract, a 92 unit in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta and a 97 unit, uh, that's the hotel to market conversion there in Kissimmee. Um, really great projects. We were able to, to get these through our, our relationships that we built uh, with brokers over the years um, and with, with our partners. And so we are, are full speed ahead, uh, looking to acquire property throughout the year. Um, partnering with you is, is at the top of the list on, on uh, you know, any one of these projects that we can. So that's been at the top of our discussion for you know, for what, about a month now, trying to, trying to you know, lock, lock one up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the business side of it, you can, you can go to school, you can go uh, grow up in the career. Um, but there's just, there are certain things that you have to learn from, from losing, you know, you take a hit. Uh, it's not about, you know, taking that hit. It's about getting back up after you take a hit. And so, um, there have been challenges, points in the career where, um, you know, you just don't know if you can continue and move on. Um, so, so, you know, being able to pick yourself back up, dust yourself off and move forward with uh, lessons learned is, is really key to this business. <clears throat> Absolutely. That's what Rocky told his son, right? Nobody's going to hit harder than life. It doesn't matter how many times you get hit. It matters how many times you get back up. Absolutely. And I see uh, my partner, Russell Nova, just left a 
left a message on the screen. That's right. Um, Russell and I just closed that 136 unit property in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. It was $18 million purchase price. We're putting, uh, we're putting a good bit of CapEx into it, about five and a half million. And so um, this is one of those projects where, you know, if something could have gone wrong, it did. And so it, it takes a, a great team and great partners to be able to face those impossible odds and then come out the other side uh, a winner. Absolutely. And, 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 and I want, and, and, and let's just harp on that for a second, because without what you just said, without that team, nothing in this business is possible. Right. Absolutely. So let, let, let's quickly talk because a lot of people listening also are, are getting started in real estate. Uh, they, they don't know where to begin or what to do. Um, and there are, there are people like Russell and you and, and, and whatnot that are listening and that are, are, are more advanced, but let's, who are the important players on a team that will make someone successful? Well, that is really going to depend on um, who you are, what your strengths are, and who compliments you. Um, you know, Russell and I complement each other very well. You and I complement each other very well. Um, and you have a, a good working relationship. That, that's going to be very key. That's going to be key to, to any partnership. Um, and being able to trust that your partner is going to do everything they can to get the deal done and get across the finish line. Um, when that is everybody's goal on the partnership, then Mm -hmm. that's when you're able to find some success. Okay. Now, um, so let me ask it a different way because yes, you do need to have people on your team that complement your skill sets because two people underwriting and nobody putting out offers and nobody networking and blah, blah, blah. You're not doing anything, right? It's just, you're, you're doing the same thing twice. But um, what, what tasks are involved or what is needed to complete a, a multifamily acquisitions, right? So if you're building your team of people, Right. Mm-hmm. So you say you have one set of skill sets and Russell compliments you. So what are those skill sets that you have versus what does Russell bring to the table and other partners? Right. So if you can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with any good partnership, you're going to have a lot of overlap, but mm-hmm. it's you know how you divide that work. And so uh, going into the, the prod, any project, the very first thing that has to happen is there has to be a deal. Right. Um, and so in order to get that, it starts many, many months before um, the property even comes across your plate. You need to build that, those relationships with the brokers. Um, you need to find sellers that are willing to sell to you. Um, and, and that begins the process. Once you have, you're able to you know, figure out that, hey, this one's for sale. We can, we can win the property. Uh, let's get our LOI out. Mm-hmm. That's when things really start moving. Um, so, you know, the first thing you need to do before you go under LOI is know that you can find financing on it. Uh, if you can't get a loan, then you're not going to close a deal. Um, and if you do and you're coming in with all cash, then you're not really taking advantage of your scale like you should. You should be able to leverage to the point that maximizes your returns for all of your investors. And so uh, debt is uh, finding that, that right place for debt the right amount of leverage is, is going to be key. And so um, Russell has a uh, debt advisory firm that specializes in multifamily. 
So I know that I can come, we know that we can find a project, whether it's him that finds it or I that find it. And then um, we need to take a look at the numbers, T12, rent roll, <clears throat> projections, create a pro forma, um, and then take that to a lender and say, hey, can are you able to give us a loan on that? <clears throat> Once we get the nod that, yeah, we're, we can start working on a term sheet for you, that's when we have the confidence to go ahead and put in an LOI, um, which then moves to the to the purchase and sale agreement phase. Um, all the while you're you're cultivating uh, that relationship with the lender. If you haven't worked with them before, if you have, you know you've got a process that you do. Um, and so, getting it under contract and getting the lender lined up are two of the most important steps. Um, <clears throat> you know, probably. The biggest step with any multifamily deal is going to be uh, finding that equity that goes along with the debt um, and figuring out where you are in the capital stack. Who are you placing where? Um, there's all kinds of equity, all kinds of ways to structure projects out there. Um, and it really is going to be dependent on who are you trying to bring in as your partner. So <clears throat> that in and of itself is the challenge that you face throughout the whole raise. You and I as syndicators, um, we work with a lot of limited partners who are individual investors, high net worth individuals um, who want to find a safe place for their money. And, and multifamily has been uh, historically one of the best places to, uh, to weather the storm as it were. And so, <clears throat> um, yeah, PSA phase. Once you get into the purchase and sale agreement phase, you need to begin your uh, PPM, your private placement memorandum. This allows you to go out into the world and start raising money for your project. Uh, this is key because when you go raise money for any kind of business, uh, you're, you're selling a security. And so the SEC needs to be involved and you don't want to mess around with the SEC. You want to have all of your T's crossed and your I's dotted. So uh, finding a, a good SEC attorney and having that person in place is going to be key to success later on down the road. Um, once you have all these things in place, then you can uh, you you continue to develop the business plan. You continue continue to develop the 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 relationship with the lender and the loan, uh, and then you start raising capital from people who are wanting to um, come into your deal. Now, sometimes you'll have to bring in other partners that can help you with that or multiple partners that can help you with that. It's really going to be deal dependent, but you want to know what you need to close before you sign that PSA. And you want to have a very good idea of where your money is coming from before you get locked up and you put your money in, uh, your hard money down. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing you want to do is get into a situation where your money could just disappear into thin air. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I do know about you. We're not in the business of losing money. We're in no the way. business of money. So uh, there is, there's a risk associated with that. Well, it's uh, going back to the team again. Um, so how do you minimize that risk? So the way you minimize that risk is you put the right people in the right places uh, to be able to get the money you need, whether that be debt or equity, to be able to get the the work that you need done, the construction or you know whatever it may be, the property management, construction management, project management, 
having a solid business plan and uh, one that you can execute on and then having the right people in place for that. Um, and of course, legal um, construction, all of these, every one of the team members is going to be very important. And um, if you are able to get to a place where, you know, you, you have the same people you go to over and over again, that helps in your ability to continue doing projects and really scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you handle, I mean, all right. So, okay. So we talked about, I, I'm, I'm going back a little bit now. Uh, you talked about the properties that were able to ride out the storm or properties that cash flowed. Mm -hmm. How important is cash flow? It, cash flow is everything. Um, you know, going into and with COVID, everything that's happening, uh, I started Burton Capital. And the goal was to not work on any projects until that cash flow is there to support any other kind of new development, uh, speculation. You know, you can't have, you can't put your money into one bucket and have it not work for you. You need to be able to um, be bringing in the money on a monthly basis to support uh, your whole portfolio uh, as well as your, you know, your future projects. So the cash flow is everything. That's right. Cash flow is everything, even in multifamily, right? Cash flow, cash flow. I remember I was at a conference and I was uh, on a panel. Uh, I was myself an owner of a property management company and another uh, property owner syndicator. And uh, I think the question was, what's more important? Um, occupancy, vacancy, or, uh, or, or, you know, delinquency or you know, something like that. So the property manager, uh, the owner of the property management company said, uh, well, she's worried, you know, she's looking at, uh, at uh, occupancy and blah, 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 and this and that, and myself and the, and the other owner operator, we kind of like took a step back. We looked at it. We said, really? The most important thing is cash flow. If you're a property manager and you're worried about other things rather than cash flow and mm -hmm. what can generate cash flow, you know, we, we were, everybody was kind of, you know, stunned at her, <laughs> you, you know, cause it, it's, that's that's the key, right? The key is cash flow. You got to be able to cash flow your property so that you can pay for your expenses, pay for renovations, pay for your uh, pay your distributions to your investors, and pay yourself at the end. Yeah, I mean, vacancy is uh, it's not that good of a thing if the tenants aren't paying. They're just taking up your space. You can't do anything with it. You're you're paying for them to live there. Right. Um, you can have hundred percent occupancy, but fifty percent are paying. Mm -hmm. And so right. you're doubly screwed <laughs> properties. We purchased earlier in the year in May uh, was that type of situation. It was 93% occupied with, with less than 60% economic wow. occupancy, meaning explain, explain economic. Okay. So your economic vacancy is the amount of, it, it's basically the, the dollars that are vacant from what should be there. So if you have a hundred percent occupied, uh, and you should be getting $100,000 a month, but you're only receiving $50,000 a month from all of those tenants, you have a 50% economic vacancy. You know, you're not making money on half 
of those units. And so uh, economic vacancy is extremely important because that leads directly to cash flow. That is your cash flow. Right. Um, and so whatever the, the issue is with the property, um, you can uh, you should be able to go in and identify what that is and have a plan for it right away. Um, you know, COVID hit that particular property very hard. Uh, a lot of people weren't able to pay. Well, we brought in a new property manager. We want to keep the tenants we have. We want to come in and we want to improve the property and we want to keep the tenants we have and provide a, a better standard of, li of living. Um, but to keep them, they need to continue paying rent. We were having an issue where a lot of people were struggling with COVID. And so it, the instruction was not to, hey, you know, take these people out and get new ones. The instruction was, okay, we're going to go door to door and talk to people about the programs that are available out there for rental assistance. And we're going to help them sign up, bring a laptop, help them sign up if that's if that's what they want to do. Um, you know, and if that person is working with us, giving them, it doesn't matter if it's hundred bucks that week, if they can give us some sort of, if they're working with us in some way, we want to keep that person. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we'll, we'll go out of our way to help them with these programs so that they're not in a situation where they're having trouble with their credit or they have an eviction or anything like that. That's not what we want for our tenants. We want to help improve the lives of our tenants. We don't want to hurt them. And so, um, a lot of the tenants just don't know the resources that are available to them and us being the professionals in the industry, it's our job to educate them and, and help them where we can. Now, of course, you're always going to have people that take advantage of the system. Those are not the people that we want. Uh, we had a, one of our tenants in particular, um, they moved in, uh, in November of 2019, I'm sorry, 2020, uh, moved in, in November of 2020. And nine months later, had not paid one dime towards uh, towards the uh, towards the rent. And we went to them and said, "Hey, you know, there are these programs available. We can help you." They didn't want anything to do with it. They just wanted to ride out their ability to uh, to squat, basically. And those are the tenants we don't want. They don't mm -hmm. they don't take care of the property. They're not uh, thinking about their neighbors. They're not. Uh, consider it in right. anything that they do. So you know, that you know, having those people move along to their next prod, uh, property or their next living space is going to be best for our community. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So let me ask you now, let's go back to uh, a little bit of um, actual talking about the property and what you look for. What are some of the criteria for a property that you're looking for and, and dive deep into some of the specifics, right? Cause a lot of times people say, Oh, I'm looking for a class B in a path of progress. And that, that's, that's kind of the, you know, the vanilla answer, right? Um, so in today's uh, environment, the number one thing I look for is, is it in a, an area that has the availability of jobs? Mm -hmm. Are these tenants going to be able to afford to live in this particular area? I, I look at the submarket. I look at the property itself. Obviously, uh, we look at where the rents are. Uh, we look at, you know, what the problems are in that particular community to where we can fix it. Is that a, a renovation? Is that mismanagement? Uh, what does that look like? Is it bad debt? Um, you know, there are multiple ways to improve a property and improve its NOI. Um, it's just, it's going to be deal dependent. I, I personally like to come in and see 
um, the ability to raise rents, the ability to put a renovation program in place that the tenants are going to uh, enjoy uh, having. They want to stay there because you're improving their property. Um, you know, the management play, I like to see that on you know, all of my projects where I can come in, I can reduce expenses, I can scale, um, and I can I can bring those rents up to market. Now, I'm not going to just come in and raise prices on everyone without giving them the benefit of whatever that price amount is. So we'll come in and we'll do the exteriors first. Uh, we'll clean up the property. We'll, we'll make sure that it's secure and safe. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are, are, they may not want the renovations in their unit, but they're happy that they've done this outside of their units. And so they're okay that we raise their rents by 50 bucks or a hundred bucks um, because we're improving the community that they already want to be in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think the past the, the actual rent itself, um, you have inefficiencies in operations, whether that be not capitalizing on particular income streams, valet trash, whatever that may be, or maybe you have too much of your income going out as expenses because let's say there is a, um, there's leaks on the property and it's causing your water bill to be twice as much as it should be, or you have um, inefficient water uh, toilets, things like that, where you're just wasting, where there's a lot of waste. Uh, and that can be said across all of your expenses. If there's waste, you uh, first thing you want to do is is look to to clean that up and trim that fat. Oh, absolutely. How how important is our, is our cap rates? So cap rates in today's environment, that's a it's a very good question. Um, I know that's a good question. Yeah, cap rates go hand in hand with the. Uh, with your rents. So if you have cap rates that are compressing, but your rents are staying the same, uh, that's a that's a red flag. However, if your rents are going up and the cap rates are still moving uh, down, then you know that's that's an easier pill to swallow. Um, so really, it's going to be market dependent on what the cap rate is, uh, and then the, obviously the exit cap rate is is crucial. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, we look at what the average is, what the average is in the area, and then we underwrite it for 100 basis points more. So, if I'm looking at, you know, these B class properties selling for a four cap, well, I'm going to underwrite it at a five cap for the exit because uh, you never know what's going to happen in three mm -hmm. to five years. Right, right, right. So, are you saying for our listeners that you can make money by buying a property that has a very low cap rate? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, cap rates aren't indicative of what the property is. Maybe the cap rate is really low because you, your pro forma, uh, you know, you can come in and perform on that asset and bring your revenue way up here so that, you know, after your first year, that cap rate that was a two or 3% going in, you know, after you get that, those rents and that pro forma up to where it should be, and you're seeing an 8% cap rate at that point. So it's really going to be dependent on, on the project itself and what that cash flow looks like uh, mm -hmm. once you're able to get stabilized. Right, right. So it's not so much what 
based on the cap rate it's based on the journey that the property is going to undergo mm -hmm. upon new ownership right right uh, you're looking at what what is it today and where can it go so uh you know going back to the project from earlier in the year it was the going in the the revenue wasn't there the economic vacancy was running wild uh and we we went under contract and the cap rate was sub four well, by the time we closed, it was a five and a half because during that time it took to close, we were able to um, get the seller to straighten out some things that they were doing wrong. Um, and so, you know, it, it only took that long to get to the where the cap rate should have been on that property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely. That's awesome. Um, all right. So let me ask you this. So in today's market, what should the acquisition strategy be? Are we in a buy and hold long-term market? Are we in a short buy something, prove the upside, flip it to the next buyer? Um, what are we looking for in this market right here? So I'm going to preface this by saying I am not uh, an investment advisor and not giving investment advice. I'm telling you what I look for. So what I look for and where, where I see um, the economy, not only in the world, but in the country, uh, there are some challenges that we will be facing soon. So currently I'm not underwriting five-year olds. I'm looking to do uh, a three-year uh, term. Ideally, I'm getting out before that. I think in a couple of years, we're going to see uh, a correction and that's going to create a buying opportunity for these distressed assets. So I want to be able to be well positioned to take advantage of uh, picking up distressed properties. Um, and to do that, I can't have you know, all of my projects into, I can't have all of my money into, into projects that I'm thinking of keeping long-term because those are gonna go down in value. So I would have to hold on to those even longer. So uh, to make a long story short, right now I'm looking for a shorter uh, hold period uh, which is why we're doing, you know, the two con conversion projects that we have, the, the student to market conversion in Tallahassee. We will take advantage of the value we create through the construction and through mm -hmm. the lease up and then let someone who wants that stabilized asset to can to take over and, and get their steady uh, 12, 13, 14 percent IRR based on um, having a stabilized asset. We're looking for the higher you know on the value add we're looking for 18 percent plus depending on what the project is these conversions that we're doing we're looking uh in the in the mid to low 20s um as a as a target uh, but our goal on any deal is to under promise and over deliver so um with the way that the market has been the excitement in the market the buyers out there uh it's beneficial for people who know how to think out of the outside of the box to do uh, something a little different. You know, right now it's it's these two conversion projects. We're we're finding that uh, the demand for multifamily and housing in general is so high that um, going and, and finding a a distressed hotel and turning it into um, you know, ninety studios, there are going to be people mm -hmm. that need to to live in that space. Uh, and instead of taking two years to build from the ground up, you know, it's going to take us four months to 
to do a, a renovation on all those units and then we'll start having people move in immediately. So it cash flows, you know, within the first year. And, and that's very important because um, you don't want to get into a situation where you personally are having to cover the debt service. In all of our loans, we make sure we have interest reserves for that first year. So uh, if we start cash flowing in year in month four and five, and then we're stabilized by month eight and nine, um, you're cash flowing before here. You'll ever get to the point where you have to um, cover the debt service, ideally. <laughs> that, the interest reserve that comes from uh, raising uh, that comes from your investors, or is the lender giving you those uh, interest reserves? So um, it, the lender will sometimes do a portion of those reserves, but for the most part, it's going to be dependent on the lender. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen where you know a lender may require a certain amount, but we want a little bit more, and we'll raise those. Um, they they will they will take a look at you know what your costs are, and they may fund let's say seventy percent of your purchase price and all of your capex, and then they will fund uh, some reserves as well, operating and interest reserves. So it's just how comfortable is that lender with giving you um, whatever amount those reserves would be. But if they can't do the full reserves, then you have to go out and raise that. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the underwriting pitfalls that you've seen other investors syndicators with their uh, you know with their financial models what do you see you know for for the new people starting out and whatnot what are some things that they should be looking at that could be a pitfall a trip hazard something like that uh with uh when when underwriting when looking at financials okay so um there are a lot of uh underwriting pitfalls that you can fall into and, and you know me i i can go down a rabbit hole when an excel spreadsheet's in front of me um you know you need to know what all your car costs are going to be all your expenses your real estate taxes insurance um and then your property expenses um you need to know what it's gonna what the demand is in the area um you know there there are finer details like municipal municipal transfer taxes um one that gets a lot of people is the um, prepayment penalty on your loan or not getting a realistic um, leverage on your loan or um, or interest rate. Um, <clears throat> other pitfalls are going to be your rent growth on a year over year basis. Right now, a lot of property managers, depending on the market here in Florida, property managers are doing um, their first and second year at 5%, but following that it's 3%. That's the most I've ever heard of you know, these people doing that. Typically in a, in a, um, any given uh, market that we're in, I would underwrite at 3%. Uh, and that is, you know, that can be seen as extreme to some people, but I'm also not looking in those markets that uh, aren't going to have growth. So. Um, I think a 3% growth, unless you can go back and say, all right, this is in this market. This is what the demand is. You know, we saw 22% growth in, in rent growth in Kissimmee this year. Um, so I'm comfortable you know, underwriting uh, 6 7% in, in the first year if I know that my starting off basis is lower than where it should be. Um, well, it's not, it's not lower. It's way low, right? You're, you're, what you're saying basically is that 
you're betting that it's gonna it's gonna drop down to zero. There's not gonna be any more, uh, you know, demand for this uh, product. You know, rents aren't going up. No more people are moving in. Right? It's flattening out to go from twenty two percent increase in rents to down to six percent. You're basically saying nothing's gonna happen this year. Market just blew up. But hey, right. that um, that gives us a lot of upside. The market. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think all of us that that saw uh, what happened during the 0809 crisis, um, you know, you, you don't forget things like that, and so you don't want to be overly optimistic. You don't want to say, "Okay, they're they're doing they did 20 percent. The forecast is another 20 percent. I'm going to underwrite it at 15 percent. That's conservative." That is not conservative. If something happens and that rent growth goes down to 10%, double-digit rent growth is strong. But you get in a, if you're looking at 15%, you end up hurting yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at a 5 or 6% rent growth in year one, which is very high, very high, um, you know, there needs to be a, a solid justification for that. Um, you know, if it's not 20% and goes down to 10, you're still winning. Uh, you're still making, uh, you're still under promising and over delivering. You, you look like a god to your investors. Yeah. Because exactly. they were happy when you underwrote it at 6% rent growth. And now you tell them, holy shit, look what's going on here. It's exploding. They're going, wow, how did you do that? How did you know? Let's do it again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, if, if the analysts are half right and it, it it's you have then doubled whatever your rent growth projections were, even though the analysts are saying it's four times what it, what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. So being conservative is at the top of the list of things you need to do uh, in your underwriting. So, you know, the model that we have been going through earlier today for that particular project, uh, every single item that we went over, okay, this is worst case scenario. You know, this county, they assess it at 87.5% to 112.5% for the property taxes. Right. Well, my underwriting shows what it would be if they assess it at 112.5%, uh, the maximum that they would do. And then I also do the maximum amount that that county would raise taxes on a yearly basis, which um, you know, that was pointed out earlier. It, it's not common that you know, these taxes grow by that amount every year. But if it has the possibility to do that, then you want to underwrite it because you don't know what is going to happen. You have no control over uh, local municipalities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Always better to err on the side of caution, right? You know, and 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 it's funny you mentioned that because and I and I always share this story. I did a, a flip, a house flip, and I got two of my friends involved, and I told them, I said, "Listen, we're going to make." about 35% return on our money in six months. They're like, wow, that's awesome. I said, yeah, that's awesome. That's a, this is a really good a good opportunity for us. It was a fix and flip house. Gave them their money back in three and a half, four months. I gave them 30%. But in four months, what did my friend say? Didn't you say 35? I said, dude, do you realize what I did for you? I said, I took your return from having it being a 70% per year annual rate, right? Because I promised you 35 in six months, so that's 70 annual, to 30% in one quarter, which means 120%. 
I go, do you understand the difference? He goes, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. But didn't you say 35? Right. So uh, managing expectations is key. That conservative, conservative underwriting will manage expectations for you. Absolutely. You, you definitely now I tell him 20% and I give him 30%. He's like, wow, that is amazing. Exactly. Yeah. It's all relative. You know, if mm -hmm. you told him 15 and then you get 30, oh my gosh, Nitsan, I'm, I'm clearing out all of my accounts to give you the money. Uh, please continue to do this for me. Right, right, exactly. It's all about managing expectations and how you present the opportunities. And, and like you said, being conservative and using worst case scenarios because you know what? Sometimes you hit that worst case scenario. Right. Right. You know, um, some properties, like you said, during COVID just didn't take it well. And if you were over leveraged and you couldn't pay and, and, and you know, your property wasn't working and you didn't underwrite for worst case scenarios, you were pretty much screwed. You know, so, you know, for, for those of you listening, travelers, and you're out there and you're and you're wanting to go underwrite, you know, it's easy to be aggressive. It's easy to say 20%. It's easy to say 25%. But you really have to come down and be conservative and make the property work with conservative numbers because then anything after that is just icing on the cake. Exactly. That's right. And it's a, you know, it's an opportunity for upside. My, my favorite thing is uh, the upside potential. There's always going to be upside potential when you conservative have conservative underwriting <laughs> absolutely and if you're ever talking to a broker and you tell them what's the upside here and they look at you like a dog in the headlights or deer in the headlights and go what i don't understand your question that's a signal from the universe to move on to the next one that's right, right. that's right the the broker should be able to <laughs> tell you how the strategy is going to work for this project without you having to go on site and figure it out if the broker comes to you and says, hey, if you put $4,200 per unit in so you can do countertops, you can replace the fridges that are bad and maybe some flooring. Uh, if you do that, you can raise rents by $250 a unit. But if you start adding some amenities, maybe you get up to 300 a unit. Um, OK, I have my business plan now. All I have to do is verify that what he said is true, as opposed to me coming in and having to go through all of this market research just to find out, well, I could only, if I raise it to market, it, that's only 50 bucks. And if I renovate, I can only get 25 more dollars. That's not, that's not going to get the type of returns my investors want. So mm -hmm. um, knowing, having the, the broker know their job is, is crucial. Um, you know, and that's, that's something I, I learned very quickly in Atlanta, uh, back in the, the mid two thousands, um, that, you know, op owner operators are busy people. We have so much coming to us, so much deal flow. So if a broker sends me just a list of properties saying, hey, pick one of these, I can't even respond to that email. I, you know, you sent me 50 properties. You think I'm, I have the time to go through all of those? No, send me a deal that you know will work. And if, if I trust you, then I'll take the time to go out and underwrite it and verify it myself. Um, and then we can do a deal together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Um, off market, on market. What's the difference? Is there a preference? I mean, ideally, off market is going to be a preference. But, um, you know, on market is, is certainly uh, 
what we look at a lot, right? So our our project in in the um, you know middle Florida area was off market. Our project in Tallahassee was off market. It was a pocket listing, so uh, the broker took it to a handful of people. It was not mass marketed. He took it to the people he knew were active in the space and that would uh, they know what value is. And they, these are the same people that are not going to uh, lowball you. You know, you want to have uh, a lot of brokers will have three or four people as their go-tos. How do you get on their short list? Uh, cultivating a relationship, uh, showing and proving that you are active and you can close deals um, no matter what's going on. Now, if this broker has done 15 deals with someone, but they haven't closed a property in two and a half years, but they've never done a deal with me, but they see I've closed you know, multiple deals throughout a pandemic, you know, and it's leading, I'm just now closed a deal. They're going to give me the contract because they know that I know exactly what it's like in today's atmosphere. And I know what challenges we're going to face to be able to get to the, the finish line there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So that broker relation is showing the broker that you can close that you're a player, that you've got the team in place, that you know exactly what you want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> how do you build a relationship with the broker? So, um, you know, there's multiple ways to do that. You could you know, contact a broker in whatever market you're, you're in and go to their office and meet them. Um, a lot of times the way I will meet brokers is, I'll go through the correct seat or the loop net um, and I'll see brokers that aren't mass marketing themselves and I'll go mm -hmm. meet this person. I'll go look at the property. And if I don't like the property, I'll put the effort in to the underwriting so that I can then hand that to the broker and say, okay, you know, I'm going to have to pass on this deal, but these are the reasons why. And that broker appreciates that I put the work in and that I communicated with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, when something comes up, up that is in my wheelhouse, what I'm looking for based off of my underwriting model, that that broker hopefully will call me and say, all right, I've got something that's that you that you're going to want. Mm -hmm. But okay. uh, really getting out and meeting people, um, getting to know someone as a person is is going to be key to uh, building that relationship. Right. And, and I guess that holds true for raising capital as well, right? Oh, absolutely. How did you start raising capital? So the debt I started raising, uh, the debt was, you know, part of what I was doing. Uh, a particular project came across my desk that, that had some challenges where this hedge fund that was supposed to come in bailed on the day of closing. They just didn't show up. Um, and so the, the group you know that's like yes i do <laughs> the group was in a situation where uh, okay we had this lined up now what are we going to do um and so i you know started going into the marketplace and and talking to people institutional equity uh, high net worth individuals family offices really trying to locate um, the group or group of people uh, mm -hmm. they put together those larger checks, because this was a, a larger deal. I think it was around a $50 million purchase or 45, somewhere around there. Right. Uh, and so that puts, you know, when you're looking for 17, $18 million in equity, um, 
you don't want to have to uh, hit the streets and, and collect twenty five thousand from this person and fifty from this person because that's gonna uh, that's gonna eat up all your time. You'll never get there. That's gonna suck up a lot of time, mm -hmm. a lot of time, right? But you know, with people starting out now, right, and they're starting their career in multifamily and they're starting to raise capital and they're building relationships with uh with brokers what what piece of advice would you give them for networking for investors so the your first deal is crucial you have you need to do whatever you can to get that first deal under your belt uh, most likely you're not going to be able to raise a ton on your first project. So you want to team up with people like you, people like me, uh, who have these projects, who have the skill um, and the ability to execute on the business plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then you, can, you, you join a team and all of a sudden you are part of this team that has all of the experience. You may be new to the industry, but that's okay. You take the package, you send it out to all of your people, um, you know, most of the time, what I've seen is the people that you think are going to be perfect for this or for multifamily, they're not the ones that come into the deal. No. Someone that you like haven't talked to in years and years and didn't even know that they knew what multifamily was will come back to you and say, hey, you're doing multifamily. And so you start generating excitement with your, your investor base. Um, now, this is going to be your personal connections. There's... You know, there's obviously other ways to to start that, but with your within your personal connections, um, just getting getting the word out that this is what you're doing is going to be crucial for generating excitement because people, uh, it, it's a fun industry to be in, or it can be fun. It can also uh, be heart wrenching, but um, you know it, it can be fun. And the, some of the most fun parts are are working with people uh, and helping them to to achieve those investment goals. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if you're looking to not go to your own personal connections and not let people, you know, uh, that, you know, really into the project until you um, have a proof of concept, as it were, uh, then you're going to want to go out and network at uh, conferences. So COVID did um, amazing things for our ability to network with people. These online uh, conferences, you're, um, where you're able to be on a, a Zoom call, but there are two, 300 other people that are in that same conference with chat rooms. Um, you can interact, send messages to get email addresses. You're able to meet a lot of people that way. Mm -hmm. And now it's it's normal to talk through Zoom. Right. That wasn't the case. You you had to go out and you had to you know, send an email to someone saying, hey, I see you're at this conference. Can we schedule some time to talk? Um, that is, you know, that's right now the live conferences are, are back up and running. We've been to a couple recently uh, together. We're, we've got the M NMHC, National Multi-House Conference. National Multi-Housing Conference next week. And then I am in in the beginning of February. Um, those are incredible ways to tough network and meet people. Um, so, so you can go and build your own investor base. You can go and find a team to join or bring people onto your team to help you uh, through these com conferences. And so those are going to be, you know, the probably the two best ways to get started. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Couldn't investor. agree more. 
right? Building relationships, right? And and don't don't pitch anyone when you're meeting them, right? You know, so many times I, I see at conferences, people coming, they're coming with their deals and they're, they just met you. They can't even, you know, in my case, they can't even pronounce my name right and they're already pitching me a deal. I'm like, really? Do you, do you think I'm going to invest with it? You don't even know my name. Right. What's my name? And they're like, oh, oh, shit. It had a Z in it. I know. Shit. What is it? I'm like, yeah, if you don't know my name, I'm not investing with you. That's just the way it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, that type of relationship is, is one-sided. They want one thing. Um, you know, we, we have a saying in our little group that we don't want to invite anyone to the party that's going to ruin it. Mm -hmm. So if this person is approaching you saying, Hey, I'm really wanting to, um, you know, get more involved. I, I can do these things. Um, I, I have these skill sets. Is there any way? I can work on a team or if they come to you and say, Hey, uh, I'm looking to build a team. I have this project, but I need help with this. Um, you know, I, I want to continue moving forward because I have problem X and problem Y and my, my bottleneck is at problem Z. So uh, people who understand that it's a team sport and are wanting to, to cultivate those uh, more long-term relationships, those are the type of people that we want to work with. The mm -hmm. one-offs are not, you know, there's, there are so many problems with one-offs because you have to, to be able to work well with someone, you have to get to know them. And if you go through a deal with someone, um, you're going to know at the end of that, if you want to work with them again or not. Right. So, right. After, Absolutely. After Absolutely. doing that a few times, you, you can kind of see on the front end, uh, how people are going to react throughout their, the, the acquisition. And a lot of people are very short-sighted. Mm-hmm. Very, very short-sighted. Awesome, man. Well, dude, we've been talking for an hour already, man. I got, you know, I'm sure you've got tons of stuff to do. So I appreciate you being here. Um, please let everybody know if they want information on Burton Capital, any any opportunities that you're working on, how to reach out to you. Please let them know, um, you know, share with us your, your contact info so that people can get in touch with you. And Russell, thanks for being here as well. And Russell says, it's always easier easier to raise rents. Yes, it is. So I don't see a place for me to just, drop. Just say it. Okay. It's charles at burtoncapitalgroup.com. Burton is B-U-R-T-O-N. Charles at burtoncapitalgroup.com. If you there want to is. see what our, um, our listings are, we have uh, our investor portal. All of our new... Um, all of our new offerings come out through the portal. So if you want first look at our offerings, you can go to uh, burtoncapitalgroup.invportal.com and just awesome. sign up for a free profile. And um, yeah, you'll be able to, to see the property, the properties we have right now and the upcoming offerings when they come out, you'll be the first one to know. Awesome. 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 Well, look, you know what? I, I, I want to do something for you as well. I'm holding a mastermind March 25th to the 27th here in Boca. Um, we're going to blow people's minds away and we're going to get them thinking the right way. We're going to get them uh, creating their intentions and putting together action plans and meeting people and networking and working on obstacles and, and whatnot. Um, the mastermind is $39.95. Uh, I'm, I'm offering you a complimentary invitation 
to the mastermind uh, March 25th and 27th. And anybody listening now, if you're interested in joining us, I'm only opening this up to 26 people. And the reason why there's 26, and if you want to know why there's 26, well, you're going to have to come to the mastermind and figure it out and I'll, you know, and hear me talk about it. Uh, but it's 39.95. It's from a Friday afternoon till Sunday. And there's, there's going to be br uh, breath work, uh, meditation work, a um, little bit of yoga, a little bit of Tai Chi or Qigong, get that energy moving because we have to create a state, a level of energy so that we can go out into the universe and, and manifest what we want. We're going to talk about how to go into our subconscious mind through, the, through our analytical mind into our subconscious mind all the way down so that we can then connect into the quantum field that is all around us and pull out of it anything that we want and on top of that we're going to do a lot of masterminding and talking and discussions and work about our different uh challenges so i'd love to have you there anybody that's interested in coming to this remember there's only 26 people seats are filling up fast march 25th to the 27th friday night to sunday late afternoon there's going to be a lot of beach time a lot of good weather south florida you don't want to miss it charles Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Travelers, I'm Nitsan Mosery. It's been an honor to serve you again. I look forward to seeing you next week somewhere on Spaceship Earth. Take care, guys.